It was a 50-minute period that changed things forever. A 33-year-old mum of two, Arlene Fraser, was on the phone to her son's school one minute and not picking up when they called back the next. And though she had arranged for her closest friend to come over, there was no answer at the door. Police were called in. They started by trying to figure out where Arlene might be and considered the possibility that something terrible had happened to her. If Arlene had come to harm, the prime suspect was her husband, who had seriously assaulted her five weeks earlier. The only problem was, Arlene's husband, Nat Fraser, had cast iron proof that he wasn't there when she vanished. I'm Dale Haslam. I'm an investigative journalist at the Press and Journal. And in this episode, I'm going to examine where Nat was during that crucial 50-minute period that sparked Scotland's largest ever missing persons case. You're listening to Vanished, the Arlene Fraser murder, a true crime podcast from the Press and Journal and Impact Podcasts. Episode 2, The Concerned Husband. I'm back in Elgin, the quiet town close to the beautiful Murray coastline. It has its fair share of crime, but it's safe and a nice place, not unlike most semi-rural communities. But things were not so peaceful on the evening of April 28th, 1998, when Arlene Fraser's disappearance resulted in Scotland's biggest missing persons investigation swinging into action. It would at its height, include hundreds of uniformed officers, dozens of detectives, and a huge search involving helicopters, divers, search dogs, and mountain rescue teams. And it spanned most of Murray. But the drama started when Arlene's concerned friends, Irene and Graham Higgins, phoned police from their new Elgin home to report Arlene Fraser missing. And so, a team of detectives was quickly assigned to the case. Part of that team was former detective superintendent, Alan Smith. A man in his early 60s with short, dark hair, piercing eyes and dark frame glasses, Alan strikes you as a straight-laced guy and serious. Today, he holds a senior role at a risk control company in Aberdeen, having left Grampian Police in 2008. Before that, Alan devoted 30 years of his life to tackling crime. He worked in the drug squad in Aberdeen before taking on some of the region's biggest murder cases as a detective. Alan has spoken extensively about this case over the years, spurred on by his goal to finally unlock the secret to locating Arlene's body. But in all those years, he's never sat down with a reporter and told the whole story from start to finish. Until now. I got Alan's number from my boss, Richard Prest, who worked as a crime reporter at the Evening Express at the time Arlene went missing. He knew Alan well, the pair having crossed paths on multiple occasions down the years. Alan and I agreed to speak. His job and family life take him across Scotland, and so he asks that we do the interview in three separate phone calls 
in between his professional commitments. It's an opportunity for me to hear Alan's recollections and views of what happened back then. You see, it was an incident that not only made national headlines, it was one that caused deep divisions within the Elgin community, despite involving a missing mother. And it was Alan's job to keep locals on side while trying to crack the case. I'm really keen to hear what Alan has to say. When you speak to Alan, who hails from the Isle of Skye, it is clear he is a measured, methodical man. Every word, spoken with a trace of his island lilt, is carefully chosen. And Alan cares passionately for the cases he worked on during his extensive police career. I was based in Aberdeen. I was running the drug squad at that time. And I was just on what they call a, a rota of duty detective inspectors, you know. So uh, Elgin, they had a CID presence in Elgin, but they didn't have a, a, a detective inspector based there at that time. And uh, so when Arlene was reported missing on the Tuesday evening, very, very quickly, because of Nat's profile and, of course, the awareness of the attempted strangulation. Yeah. Weeks earlier, you know, she was immediately red flagged as a, a vulnerable, high, high, highly vulnerable missing person. So it was very quickly escalated um, to the CID. I was asked to go up and uh, take a look at it. A strict protocol was followed. After police got the call, at around 7.30pm, the priority was ensuring the children could be looked after. Police then had to get the balance right between doing enough and doing too much. Had they launched a major appeal on that Tuesday night, it might have all been for nothing if, as with the majority of missing persons cases, Arlene had turned up that evening with an innocent explanation for an unfortunate misunderstanding. Detectives didn't want to overly worry people but equally, they knew that time was a key factor. Among those that police spoke to were Arlene's close friends, Michelle Scott and Marion Taylor, who we heard from in episode one. Here's Michelle. I think I had to go round the house with the police, you know, and see if anything was missing and, and looking round and in the bathroom and was there anything missing and clothes were hanging over the bath. Police spoke to Marion too. I got a phone call from the police saying yeah. that they'll come out and see me. Would I be in later? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm not working anyway. But they said, right. So they came and they said they'd come back out in the morning. And I honestly thought she'd gone away for a day trip. And I said, no. I said, Arlene wouldn't have left her kids. And if she thought she was going to be late, if she did have an appointment anywhere, then, you know, I said she would have made arrangements for them. I said, there's no way would she just disappear. Even at that early stage, Based on everything she knew, Marion told the police officer she suspected Arlene's husband, Nat, of foul play. And he says, well, honest opinion, what do you think of Arlene? I says, he's done something, yeah. No doubt in my mind. In the early hours of the following day, police stepped up their operation, visiting Arlene's sister, Carol Gillies, at home in Glasgow. Police visited Carol first because of how close Arlene and Carol were. 
It was conceivable that Arlene had just gone to Glasgow to stay with her sister, or that her sister knew where Arlene was. Officers knocked on the door in the middle of the night. A bleary-eyed Carol answered and heard the words, Your sister has been reported missing. Carol had no idea where Arlene was, so the next step was for police to call Arlene's husband, Nat Fraser. So let's remind ourselves about Nat Fraser. At the time of Arlene's disappearance, he was a 39-year-old father of two, and the pair had been married for nearly 11 years. Before they met, Nat had set himself on the way to a comfortable living after spending time with a friend, learning how that friend's fresh produce delivery company worked. Nat then used what he'd learned as a blueprint to launch his own business. On most weekdays, Nat would rise at dawn, head down to his warehouse, load up the van and spend the day delivering fruit and veg before knocking off at around 3pm. That left his evenings free and Nat used that time for his other passions, music and women. He played in his band, The Minesweepers, which performed in bars across Murray. Two outsiders, Nat was a family man who doted on his two kids. He was always confident, always quick with a wisecrack. But the confidence and wisecracks were all for show. On the inside, Nat had a black heart. Nat was deeply jealous of Arlene's newly found social life and the fact she had found the confidence to go to college to better herself. As we heard in the first episode, Arlene's close friends, Michelle Scott and Marion Taylor, could see Arlene trying to express herself against Nat's wishes. Then there was his cheating and the violence. On several occasions, Nat physically assaulted Arlene. These incidents culminated in Nat trying to choke Arlene to death with a dressing gown cord. Nat was on bail for that offence at the time of Arlene's disappearance. Barred by a court order from living at the family home at 2 Smith Street, Nat was living with his lifelong pal, Ian Pedro Taylor, a few miles away in Lambride. After Arlene disappeared, police had to check if she was at Pedro's house and also inform Nat that his two children were staying with family friends. And so police called Nat on Taylor's landline around 3am on the 29th of April. Former Detective Superintendent Alan Smith was privy to that phone call. So when that phone call ultimately came into him, it was a big drama. Oh, what's happened here? Let's go into Elgin and check the hospitals. It struck police as odd that right away, Nat inferred that Arlene had been hurt and might be in hospital. The officers listening into that call also thought Nat seemed overly dramatic. Looking back on that crucial period in the hours after Arlene was reported missing, Nat was extremely naive in the way he handled things. He got that call in the middle of the night from police and reacted like Arlene's disappearance was news to him. The only problem was, it most certainly wasn't news to him because two other people had already told him something was wrong. When the receptionist at New Elgin Primary School got no answer from Arlene, she called Nat to say she hadn't picked up the phone. And when Graham Higgins took the kids in, he called Nat 
to let him know that Arlene was missing. That was the first sign that Nat Fraser was hiding something. When he got the phone call, he must have been waiting to get the phone call. Yeah. To say the kids have, the kids have come home to an empty house. But he couldn't preempt that. He over-dramatised the whole thing. And it, it always occurred to us that if, if, if he had had no awareness, it would have been a completely different reaction. So this was all, again, part of a plan to create a, an impression of being the caring husband, rushing to the aid of the children and, and uh, you know, let's see if we can find Arlene and phoning up hospitals and all this. And it was just, like, completely over the top. Yeah. Alan's thinking back then that it would be really odd for Nat to pretend he cared about where Arlene was if he was the one responsible for her being missing. According to Alan, Nat Fraser's priority was to make it look to his own children like he was doing as much as possible to get their mum back. He wouldn't have given a hoot where Arlene is. You know, he'd have been just, he'd have been happy that it's about a point scoring exercise for the kids. As dawn broke, a team of Grampian police detectives travelled from Aberdeen to Elgin, now fully aware that this missing persons case was taking a sinister turn. Detectives went to Arlene's home at 2 Smith Street. They videoed the property from top to bottom. This video would later prove to be vital. Next, police officers asked colleagues in neighbouring areas to keep a lookout for Arlene. And then they started to formally interview the key players, including Michelle and Marion. 48 hours before Arlene went missing, Marion had had a heart-to-heart -heart with Arlene. And Marion had previously urged Arlene to be careful because she feared Nat would do something awful to Arlene. And Michelle was the one who discovered Arlene's house empty. And then there were Graham and Irene Higgins, the family friends who took in Arlene's children when they arrived home from school to an empty house. Police also spoke with staff from New Elgin Primary School, including the receptionist, who was the last person known to have spoken with Arlene over the phone. And 15 days after Arlene went missing, police announced they were no longer treating this as just a missing persons investigation. This was now a murder inquiry. Police had some early theories about what could have happened to Arlene. Their focus was on that all-important 50-minute window between her calling the children's school and Michelle Scott arriving to an empty house. So, what was Alan's instinct at the start of the investigation? What did he think happened to Arlene? The fact that she was a creature of habit and she had that routine you speak about. When we looked at her lifestyle, because one of the things you do very early on is you, 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 build, you build a picture of the the lifestyle of those closest to the the situation. So Arlene had a, a routine, and her routine revolved around primarily college and also the kids. Yeah. She had a very limited time for myself, if you like, you know. Mm. And when we looked at her timeline, you know, the only time that she was ever really on her own and had time for herself was on a Tuesday morning. 
every other day of the week and the evenings were were absorbed with family or college yeah. stuff. If I knew Arlene's routine intimately and I was looking to identify an opportunity to um, do something yeah. to Arlene, then it would be a Tuesday morning. And a Tuesday morning between 9 o'clock and maybe 11 o'clock because yeah. she then went out to meet a friend for lunch. So I thought that, you know, if you if you look, if you just do the maths, you know, yeah. and you were looking for a two-hour two hour opportunity, optimal opportunity in a week, was it a coincidence that that's when it happened? Probably not, no. While detectives couldn't rule anything out, they thought it was very unlikely that Arlene had just up sticks and left. They now believed she'd been abducted and murdered. Arlene wouldn't abandon her two kids and she wouldn't have left crucial medication and other belongings in the house. That led detectives straight to her husband, Nat Fraser. But there was one problem. Nat had a rock-solid alibi, so they didn't have grounds to arrest him. So we're here at the junction of High Street and Lassie Wind in Elgin Town Centre. And what it is today in 2023 is not like it was at all in 1998, because since then, uh, large swathes of the town centre have been pedestrianised. And because of that, things have changed. Cars, uh, which would have come and go at that point, no longer do, and also, uh, a set of key phone boxes that were there in 1998 and no longer there. But those phone boxes were pivotal to this story because what happened on that day was that Nat Fraser had begun his uh, fruit and veg round and he brought along with him a young lad called Grant Fraser. No relation, they just happened to have the same surname. They were a few minutes early delivering fruit and veg to a, a local uh, cafe. So what they did, they parked their lorry here where we stood and Nat asked Grant just to wait for a while and then walked to the spot that we're on where there was a phone box. And Nat loitered for a while and then he went inside the phone box and it's quite common at the time, this is way before mobile phones became established, he would use that phone box to make a pre-arranged phone call to a young lady called Hazel Walker. Hazel had met Nat 10 days earlier when she went to the Grand Arms pub to watch her uncle play in the band, the same band in which Nat sang. Hazel began chatting with Nat and they flirted for a while. And then Hazel gave Nat her phone number and he called her every day from that point on. All those calls had been spontaneous, but not the one on the day Arlene went missing. That was the only one Nat had prearranged. And this conversation was really important because it was that conversation which was picked up on a CTV camera which would have been adjoined to one of the buildings uh, that were stood by that picked up Nat Fraser, his image, as he was coming out of that phone box. What was really, really significant was the time on that CCTV still which later became available. The time matched up with the exact moment that Arlene Fraser was last heard of. The call ended at 9.50am, the exact moment Arlene called the school, a point that struck Arlene's close friend, Michelle Scott, as odd. I always thought 
not organised it, but somebody else done it. Police at this stage were quite stuck. They wanted to crack the case, but couldn't arrest Nat because of the alibi. Meanwhile, Nat was making it hard for them. Most people in Elgin thought Nat was a stand-up guy back then, and he used that to his advantage. Here's Alan again. Because we had a sizable team from Aberdeen okay, working up in Elgin. And so there was a lot, you know, a lot of this going on in, the, in Elgin that, no, I wouldn't say resentment, maybe a bit of resentment, certainly amongst Nats. Yeah. Um, vividly remember being in a supermarket in Elgin off duty. And I had one of my, my kids that are grown up now, but I had one of my kids with me at the time. And I remember somebody coming up to me and saying, he knew who I was and, and basically said, can you not just give Nat a break? Nat stopped at nothing to play down the case. You know, I would often meet with Nat and give him an update, you know. And he would, he would, he would, he was, it was bizarre, you know, he would, he would pitch up at the, uh, he would pitch up at the office uh, at the end of his day, you know, maybe five o'clock, double park up on the pavement, jump out of the cab, come across into the office and, I'd come down to see him. How are you doing, Alan? He was a very hell fellow well met. He's actually quite a beguiling kind of guy. Mm. He, he, you know, he's, he's always joking. He takes nothing seriously. And, um, so he'd pitch up, but how are you doing, Alan? They word the day, Nandy, and, you know, and you'd think, no, nothing doing, you know. Ah, well, you boys must be getting guy fed up with this. He would have been delighted, Dale, if... I turned up and said, you know what, Nat, it's run its course. We're going to have to withdraw the resources back to Aberdeen. The only problem for Nat was, it was never going to be that simple. It's important to consider the political situation back in 1998 and the mood among police and the public. Earlier that year, a special panel published a damning report about Grampian police after the police failed to find the body of nine-year-old Scott Simpson quickly enough in Aberdeen after he was snatched and murdered by a paedophile. This was a point in time where Grampian police had been taken through the eye of a needle by, by Lothian and Borders, you know, for Scott Simpsons. And that was not good reading. And the, the last thing that the force executive were going to allowed to happen here was criticism that we didn't give this our full attention. So, you know, the, the resources that were applied to Arlene's investigation were second to none. I'd, I'd seen nothing like it. Nat's plan in all of this was to create an impression that Arlene had disappeared, that she'd run away into the sunset for whatever reason. That, that was a huge error of judgment. His simplistic view or his simplistic thinking was, yeah, there'll be a little bit of police activity for a few days, a little bit of maybe media and the press and the local Northern Scot maybe, but then that'll be it. He must have realized very quickly, oh my God, we've underestimated this. And I remember having a conversation with him. I think it was maybe three, four months after, you know. And I remember saying to him, he said something about a holiday. And I said, Nat, I said, this is one hell of a holiday she's having, you know. Appalling stories, false stories, 
about Arlene taking drugs and binge drinking alcohol spread throughout Elgin, but they were nonsense. And many believed it was Nat who was spreading those vicious rumours. Once police had released the house at 2 Smith Street back to the family, Nat could visit the kids there. And one night, someone made a strange discovery under Arlene's bed. It was a collection of syringes. These syringes were planted there by Nat to make it look as if Arlene was on drugs. At what point? That was after she went missing. Right. He told all his mates that all, all of us were drug addicts, including Arlene. Sure. Arlene would carry a wine glass around to fit in and occasionally take sips, but she would never even get close to being drunk, which made these rumours very hard to believe. With Nat still walking the streets, Marion and Michelle felt threatened by him. On one occasion, Nat happened to bump into a girl who Marion was teaching to drive. What Nat said that day sent shivers down Marion's spine. And he said to the, one of my pupils at the time, he said, who are you getting driving lessons from? And she said, oh, I'm getting driving lessons from Marion Taylor. Mm. And he goes, well, I'll tell you what. He says, can you ask her if she would like to come to a murder mystery weekend with us? Now, I took that as a threat. In sharp contrast to his dark side, Nat continued, in the public eye, to play the role of the bereft husband, struggling to understand why his wife had vanished and why he was in the frame for her murder. He organised a press conference and put up a £10,000 reward for information about Arlene's whereabouts. Here's Alan Smith again. But the real driver behind the press conference is that the family put up a reward. I think they put up a reward of £10,000. Matt said, well, I'm going to have to match that. And the family weren't very happy about that, but we couldn't stop them. And the family were a little bit miffed at the fact that Nat had the audacity to put up a reward, given he was the answer to the reward. Tactically, in those days, you know, from a police perspective... You know, we want to use the psychology of that to get an independent view on how he behaves, body language, all that good stuff. At the time, police knew Nat was their prime suspect. But they had very little physical evidence to go on. And so they used all the weapons in their armoury to get a steer on what Nat was feeling and thinking. At the press conference... Detectives brought in an expert to study Nat's body language in the hope it would give them clues about whether or not he was being honest. But it didn't tell them much, certainly not enough to arrest Nat or prove his involvement in Arlene's disappearance. Detectives even turned to psychics in the hope of making a breakthrough, as they felt under pressure by the media to find Arlene. But the case went cold. You know, you get you get sucked into it, Absolutely. but it becomes all-consuming. You know, and uh, you know, I was managing a team of guys who were highly vested in getting to the bottom of this. You know, so you know, you were you were you were tr- you were constantly trying to evaluate, reevaluate. What what does this tell us? What does this look like? As the months went by, it looked like all hope was lost, and that nobody would be brought to justice. 
until everything changed. A new team of detectives was formed. A new lead in the case emerged. One of the detectives newly assigned to the investigation went through all the files, just in case. And he found a tip-off, a tip-off relating to a car. It was this information that would blow the case wide open and give police a new theory about what had happened to Arlene. Next time on Vanished. You know, days before the family car had gone on fire. Now, that undoubtedly was not. This next part might sound like something out of a spy novel, but it really did happen. The purchase of the Ford Fiesta the night before, was that a ruse? That's what took her out that day. Did somebody appear at the door offering to take her out in a test driver? Of course, let's go and have a run in the car. Just say you do not remember. Just turn your back and walk away from the bastards. Just say nothing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Vanished, the Arlene Fraser murder. Vanished is a production from the Press and Journal and Impact Podcasts. You can listen to the whole series on all major podcast platforms. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and follow our podcast page so you never miss a new episode. And why not check out Hunting Mr X, a true crime podcast. This podcast was hosted and reported by me, Dale Haslam. It was produced by Marvin McIntyre and Brendan Duggan. Assistant producer is Megan Avonio.